Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. The border zone between history and fiction can be dangerous territory. When, if ever, is speculation acceptable? Is invention justified? Can fictionalising history advance the understanding of truth? Pre-eminent British historian Sir Anthony Beaver takes on local creative non-fiction writer Joanna Groshevitz and historical fiction novelist Rosetta Allen in a light-hearted consideration of the pros and cons of monkeying with the historical record. The session is chaired by Hannah August. We hope you enjoy it. to introduce in order of um, their seating them uh, our three wonderful panellists, Rosetta Allen to my left, who has published two volumes of poetry and had her work appear in publications and anthologies in New Zealand, Australia and the US. She is the author of two novels with historical settings, which is why she's here today, 2014's Purgatory, based on the 1865 Auto Who Who Murders and the much more recent, The Unreliable People, which is set in Russia and Kazakhstan at the beginning and end of the 20th century. She's also the 2019 CNZ Writer-in-Residence at the University of Waikato. Sir Anthony Beaver is a military historian who will be known to many of you for his monumental histories of 20th century conflicts, 13 of them to date, including Crete, the Battle and, Res and the, the, the Resistance, Stalingrad, Bernard Bull and the Downfall, 1945, and most recently his account of the Battle of Arnhem. Um, the author's most recent books are sitting on the table in front of me. Uh, his works have been published in more than 30 languages and he is the recipient of numerous honours and awards and we're very grateful to the Heartland Bank for enabling him to be with us today. And over here, Joanna Grokovitz, who writes narrative non-fiction, we might interrogate that term uh, over the course <laughs> of the session. She has a master's in Russian language and literature and in creative writing and is the author of two books that bring alive for younger readers the thrill and tragedy of Antarctic exploration into the White Scots Antarctic Odyssey and very recently Amundsen's Way, also sitting on the table in front of me. Um, we will take questions at the end of the session. I'll leave about 10 minutes um, for that and uh, run you through the process for doing that when we get to that point. But I'd just like to begin by asking our panellists, what draws you to write about history or to choose a historical setting for the fiction that you're writing. Maybe starting with Rosetta. Oh, well, uh, the writer's mind is one of a, a curious... I, I like to think that I start with a place of curiosity. So um, as a reader, I, I'm an active reader. I like to learn while I'm reading. So I'm drawn to that kind of reading anyway. So when I find an inf interesting bit of historical information, I want to know more. And so I start delving and delving and delving, and, and then you realise there's a story there. There's just, you, you, I like that you can unearth these gold nuggets, and, and they become a core of a story, and you think, OK, maybe there is a story here, and off I go. And um, sure enough, that's how it happened with Purgatory. I thought it would be a short story, and it turned into a novel, because my curiosity just runs with it, and I just love learning about other cultures, other people, other time, other experiences, and actually as a writer getting in the mindset of, of, of someone else uh, other than m myself and, and um, exploring that. So yeah, Fant I enjoyed it. Fantastic. Um, we'll come back to the idea of getting in the mindset of someone other, mm. than, other than yourself, I think. Um, Anthony, how about you? 
it always starts with actually a great history teacher at school. Mm. Um, and then I was very lucky to study under John Keegan at Sandhurst. I was always intrigued also at the way that the British Anglo-Saxon tradition of history was very much due to Edward Gibbon, the decline and fall, and therefore that um, history in sort of, if you like, in Anglo-Saxon terms has always been much more a branch of literature, unlike, say, the continental uh, and particularly German idea that uh, history is a branch of science, which it can never be. You can never test it in a laboratory or anything like that. And I think it's one of the reasons why, um, on the whole, particularly whether one think one's thinking of Spain and the Spanish Civil War and so forth, um, the British attitude to history of writing it, as I say, rather closer, more likely, more, more like literature um, than the sort of the totally analytical way, has actually um, increased the, the reach, if you like, of British historians much more than, than perhaps they, they deserve in, uh, um, in, in an international context. Mm, fantastic. Um, how about you, Joanna? What, what's pushed you in this direction? Uh, well, for me, it's about taking uh, an event that might not be so well known or an event um, that has been cast in a particular light um, and then stripping it back to its basic elements and then maybe the challenge of um, writing, uh, well, a, challenge, a writing challenge to evoke the, uh, the details, um, to evoke a, a sense of time and place. So, um, with my first book, Into the White, uh, the reason I wrote that was because I felt that Captain Scott's story, the story of the Terra Nova expedition, had been cast in a particular light, and it is really the gold standard of heroic failure, and I think that that is, um, uh, it's not doing the story justice. Mm. Um, the characters, well, they're not characters, they're real people. Um, they had become caricatures and I think that that is uh, most unfortunate, um, particularly with people like Lawrence Oates, who um, you know, was a young man who uh, chose to end his life on his own terms, and yet he has, um, you know, 60, 60 or 70 years later, became the, the subject of a, a Monty Python sketch. You know, so it's a sort of a very unedifying, and I think that um, <laughs> I would like to um, I would like to bring these people back to you know I would like to um, humanise them. Uh, and in the case of Amundsen, he this is a this is a remarkable man that has been eclipsed. Um, he really has been sidelined um, in the Anglo-Saxon world, and for me it was very important to bring his story, he's an, a captivating person, an extraordinary individual, and, and bring that, that story, the details of that story, um, to a wider audience, very important for me. Yeah, so I want to um, pick up on what you said about humanising these, these figures from history, because of mm. course um, uh, there that can be done for readers, but how, are you, how can you be sure that you are humanising a dead historical figure in the way that they themselves would, would have seen themselves or that their, their family and closest yeah. friends would have seen them? I think this is, this is the challenge when you're writing so-called narrative non-fiction, creative non-fiction, whatever mm. term you want to use. Mm. Um, how, how do you decide? Well, I 
My research uh, process um, draws heavily on primary sources, so the men's diaries. Mm -hmm. um, ov obviously, diaries, um, or in, in particular with the exploration um, diaries, the sledging diaries, the men knew that these diaries would be at some point requisitioned and used to um, augment the official narrative. So they weren't necessarily uh, as honest as they might have been if if it had been purely for their own gratification that they were writing this. Um, so I draw on those, on those diaries. There's a lot of detail in there, but where there's the real gold is in their letters home. Mm. So for example, mm. Henry Bowers and, um, and Oates wrote um, very, uh, very brutally honest letters back to mother. Well, both of them had um, very close relationships with their mothers, and they knew that these letters would not be posted until they returned um, to New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, but they they kept very, um, you know, they they did not hold anything back. And with Amundsen, I was very lucky to have access to the sledging diaries, the English translations of the sledging diaries of Amundsen's men um, that are, uh, haven't been published. So. Um, I had to sit in, a, in the director's office um, and make furious notes for um, 10 days. But that was, you know, that's a, a, a brilliant way of getting inside people's heads and, and uh, understanding the group dynamic because in both stories, the, you know, have these, these men that are living in very confined spaces under very um, tricky, challenging situations. Mm. And that's, that to me is fascinating as well. Yeah, so what, I mean, one of the things that is so, makes your books so compelling is your imagining of dialogue, of the conversations between these mm. men. And I wondered, coming back um, to you, Anthony, I mean, we find snippets of reported speech in, in well, certainly in, in a book like Arnhem, um, which I've just finished, but um, perhaps, Joanna, where you are ultimately inferring what might have been said. Yeah, can I just, because this is something that I feel very strongly about. I. I would not put anything in the book that I that I wasn't triple sure occurred. I know that it happened. Mm. Um, I know the gist of the conversation, and I have exam um, you know, come to it from from multiple angles. So men have talked about a particular exchange, for example, the 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 huge fight between Roald Amundsen and his Bete Noir Hjalmar Johansson. That was really a it was it was very dicey. It looked like um, you know it could imperil the whole. Uh, expedition. That conversation took place. I know the the cast of the conversation. Every man around that table recorded that in their diary. So mm. I can be sure that that happened. And I was very, very careful with all of the all of the dialogue. Mm. Mm. How, what's what's your attitude towards reported speech or, or dialogue in in the books that you write, Ashley? One needs contemporary accounts. Um, one knows how bad memory is. I mean, there was a famous case of after 9-11 of this uh, American professor at Columbia University who got all of his students to write down exactly what had happened the day before, what mm -hmm. they'd done, what they'd seen, etc. And he got them 10 years later to do exactly the same. And they 
there was no connection almost between the two versions. So one knows how bad memory is, and therefore, um, although I've done interviews, for example, particularly with the Stalingrad and Berlin books, I've done uh, interviews with people who were there at the time and eyewitnesses, uh, one has to obviously be extremely cautious about that. It's just detail which they might be able to add, but you cannot use it as a primary source. Mm. Um, as far as uh, certain accounts are concerned, I mean, for example, when researching uh, Stalingrad, Berlin, or whatever, I mean, you get some of the memoirs, the Russian memoirs, where the whole thing will be virtually invented dialogue. Um, you have to be really careful. Except in cases where, for example, Marshal Zhukov had been talking to Stalin, you could be fairly sure that he probably recorded that immediately afterwards. Mm. So, um, no, one's got, to be, one's got to be very, very uh, careful indeed, obviously, about anything, anything like that, yeah. Mm. And so, Rosetta, you're at the, the furthest end of the spectrum in terms of, I mean, would it be fair, you would describe what you write as historical fiction, would that? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so how, how do you, what's your attitude towards uh, having real people say imagined words? Um, well, I draw from uh, the thing I, I, I admire about all of us is that we, we, all see, we all like to aim for the source. And for me, the source is experience, people uh, that, have, um, that are talking about their own experience. And I'm lucky enough that I, I'm not going too far into history, that there's actually dialogue, uh, documented conversations of people and their experiences from 1937. And then again in 1993, there's still people alive that I can talk to that were um, in St. Petersburg in Kazakhstan in 1993. And um, people who were uh, children in 1937. And, and yes, there's the memory um, memory shift, but for me, when I'm writing, I want to know more than just the facts. I'm wanting to know how it's affected uh, these people and their lives and the multi-generational trauma and how that's working its way out in, in, in a modern, near historical to us now, but in a modern time of, of sort of bookended uh, trauma, time of catastrophe uh, and that search for identity. So for me, I'm interested in the effect on them um, firsthand, and um, then I go to their experiences. But you know, Napoleon was it Napoleon who said that history is a set of facts agreed upon. I know that secondhand history books cannot always be relied on because you know we have a history is is a process of eliminating pieces of uncomfortable history and recreating. When I was writing the essay about the kamikazes, and I uh, learned that Japan in recent times have have been taking certain words. Uh, such as invasion and, and suicide out of their school curriculum books. So it's still happening. And so for me, that's the source is the people. Um, uh, and, and I try to draw from how they talk, what they are saying, and um, you know, how they're feeling about it. And that's what I draw my dialogue from. Yeah, yeah so this idea that um, has, we're only ever seeing kind of uh, a certain vantage point on history. How do you all choose what to leave out? There's always going mm. to be something that doesn't make it, regardless of how comprehensive um, uh, your approach is attempting to be in terms of what you're, uh, the slice of history that you're dealing with. How do you choose, Rosetta, what to leave out? It's really difficult, because like I said, I've got a passion and, and uh, I, I I enjoy the research aspect of it, and this novel is based in Russia and Kazakhstan, so it's a vast country with a vast history, and, and Kazakhstan is, is the most multicultural uh, country in the world with 147 different nationalities, so for me to pick up that 
one stream. Uh, uh, and meanwhile, you know, you're researching so much more. For instance, you know, when I first started writing this novel, I thought it was going to be about the siege of Leningrad. Um, and in fact, when I handed the, the uh, novel to my um, editor, there was still this arm of the siege of Leningrad there that I dearly loved. And so we, we decided we would, we would keep the integrity of the Kuriosarum story and I, I would have to leave that for another time. Mm. So yes, it's difficult and, and you feel like you're chopping off an arm because you've, you've, you've put a piece of yourself in that story. Uh, so I don't know if that answers your question, but there you go. Well, people, Anthony, people might be forgiven for thinking that you haven't left anything out of the book that size. Um, but um, but I, I know that there must be certain things. How, how do you choose what your, what your angle is? Well, obviously is? you leave out stuff which uh, quite often you come across stuff which is... Um, uh, almost too good to be true, and you can be pretty damn sure that it isn't true. So you've, got to, you've got to be, I mean, I remember when I was researching Stalingrad, right at the very beginning, I was fascinated by what was one of the great bestsellers of the 1950s, which was called Last Letters from Stalingrad. Um, and curiously, by the time I hit the archives in Freiburg, um, I was starting to get very, very dubious about this particular book. And there I found actually some of the genuine last letters. And the reason was that actually the, uh, the version in the published book was rather literary. Uh, but here one found, of course, that actually they were only writing two or three lines, A, because the last aircraft was about to leave, but also because their fingers were so frostbitten they couldn't hold the pen properly. Um, and funnily enough, it was one of these things. I suddenly realized that it was completely fake, these letters. And then I found actually that a German academic had discovered this only a few months before and had... Uh, <laughs> the other thing about leaving out, of course, was then when it came to the Berlin book, um, there is what one might describe almost as the pornography of war, where mm -hmm. some things are so horrific. Uh, and I was extremely lucky. I had the wonderful Catherine Meridale, who did a superb book herself on, uh, called Ivan's War, about uh, the Red Army soldier. And she went through my manuscript. And you're so close to the material, you can't really judge. Uh, and she quite rightly pointed out one or two things she said, for God's sake, you know, this could be misinterpreted. Um, think about it, so I would, I would cut it out. But it is, um, uh, it is a very difficult area. I mean, I'm never going to forget when um, on a uh, radio program with Andrew Marr, Neil Ferguson accused Max Hastings and me of writing war pornography uh, and of being controversial. Max, I was so shaken, I didn't know what to reply. Max uh, shot back saying, Neil, controversial coming from you, that's a bit rich. <laughs> anyway, um, but it is true. It is a difficult. Yeah. It is a difficult area. Mm, mm. Joanna, it's interesting because um, uh, certainly in um, Into the White, there are some quite grisly scenes of um, mm. the sort of physical changes that mm. these explorers go through as mm. they um, get more and more frostbitten and malnourished. Mm. And, um, uh, and I, I get the sense that you don't, even though these are books for um, younger people, that you don't really pull pull no, back. No, I, from I, that. Don't, I no. don't see any any point in pulling back. Um, I don't believe it's gratuitous. Mm. But I, I don't think I've I, I don't think I've left anything out that that I wanted to put. Well, I tell you what got taken out, yeah. and that is the um, probably a, a, a wonderful example of of a, of a very talented editor. Um, my wonderful editor Kate Whitfield in Melbourne, um, uh, when I uh, was working with her on the uh, the the uh, copy edit for the for Into the White, um, there's, a, there's an early scene where the Terra Nova has just left New Zealand. Um, they've encountered this dreadful storm at sea and it looks as though that they're all, they're all going to sink. And um, every man has to grab what they can to bail out the boat. And um, I found a 
I've gone dead. You have. Oh. I've gone dead. Hello, hello. No, I have. I'm are. back. I'm Great. back. Right. So this, uh, all the men are bailing out the boat and they're singing sea shanties to keep keep themselves motivated because it was three nights of, of bailing out the boat, no sleeping, no mm -hmm. eating, um, very little to drink. And I found this brilliant sea shanty that made it into the manuscript and I was so proud about, about how perfect it was for the scene and I was devastated when Kate called me and she said, you know that sea shanty? And I went, yeah, it's great, isn't it? She said, it was written in 1986. <laughs> 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 so that got cut. Um, and I looked for another one that was more appropriate for the era and no, none of them, none of them passed, you know, passed the so, test. So here we're moving into the interesting territory of how much are you allowed to fudge for the sake of making the story come alive? I don't think there's any justification for any fudging. I, I, I feel very strongly um, I have a responsibility not only to my readers but also to the people that um, I'm writing about. These were real people and I'm, and I'm not a fudger. Yes. So, um, not not to pit you against one another, but I noticed that Ro <laughs> Rosetta, at the back of your book, you have a disclaimer hmm. where you say something <laughs> along the lines of, "For the sake of the story, I have changed these couple of details." And yes. um, I wondered if you could speak to that. You'll you'll notice that they're minor details. For instance, the Academy of Art on Vesalevsky Island was open to its students on the weekend coming up to. Uh, time of, 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 of marking end-of-year works. They're not major things. I've changed orders of timelines slightly. Um, the dog man who um, walked around on collar and chain naked in, in um, Red Square in Moscow was later in the year. They're minor things, but for the sake of the story, they need to slot into slightly earlier time frames. So, I don't like to think that I'm a fudger either because I stick pretty close to historical facts. Everything, including the mythology that I follow, the ghost train that um, is the mythology that rose up uh, from the deportation of the Kuriosarum in 1937, so they were bundled in cattle cars uh, and thousands died on, these, uh, on this journey in, into exile into Central Asia. And those that were left at the uh, train stations were not uh, they did not have the time uh, to give them honourable burial. So the mythology rose up that those who were left there were cursed to roam the train line for eternity looking for their loved ones. So, uh, uh, and the story of the, the, the um, folk story of the croaking is a traditional Korean uh, folk story. So I have actually drawn all of my story from facts. Um, where the imagination kicks in is simply with the characters. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. so that's an interesting, you know, do we feel that there is more of a, we have more of a sense of responsibility in the depiction of real historical figures mm. um, as opposed to a historical setting? Mm -hmm. um, Anthony, yeah. fudging or not fudging? Well, I think that that is absolutely right, this whole question of real historical figures. Uh, interestingly, if one looks back, um, Tolstoy, the real historical figures aren't very interesting. It's the real, it's the imagined, um, the created figures who are the fascinating ones. And I'm always very, very dubious. I don't agree with Neil Ferguson who says that all historical fiction is a corruption. I think it's a ridiculous, <laughs> sweeping remark. Uh, what I do feel, though, is that one should be extremely careful. Um, and in fact, I'm, I'm not really um, very happy when people actually take real historical figures and actually fictionalize history, you know, because I think, A, that's idle. 
um, and pretty lazy. Um, and Is that, are you saying that about me? No. <laughs> I'm not, you, because you're not, I, don't, I would not describe that as fiction. Um, what, what I'm doing is... No. Yeah. Okay, but just, to, just to finish on the, on the real... Stay here, <laughs> I think that the real, the, real, the real issue is the question of putting words and ideas into um, real people from history. And I, a lot of um, no novelists will agree. I mean, Helen Dunmore, who's a great friend, so, so she said that one should never uh, invent dialogue or thoughts or in, for historical fact, uh, characters. Uh, Linda Grant, I remember pointing out that actually when you take examples like Laura Simpenfeld, Simpenfeld did this book about um, Laura Bush, um, it was far better that she actually changed the name and used mm. the formula of the Romain Clay. Mm. Uh, and that, I think, is utterly legitimate. For example, Justin Cartwright did a superb novel uh, called um, After the Song is Sung, or whatever it was, about Isaiah Berlin and his friendship with Adam von Trott. Um, you knew it was about the two of them, but at the same time, the very fact of actually the Romain Clay distanced it enough. And I think one's got to be careful. It's not just a question of the novel or the book itself. Um, the frontier between fact and fiction is an area of huge commercial potential and also, therefore, of huge corruption of historical records. And it's the way that, for example, the book will then maybe be turned into a film, mm. and, of course, then the directors mm. will re-dramatise it mm. in different ways. And that weasel phrase, you know, based on a true story, um, I find it terrifying because we've got to the stage where so many people get their idea or knowledge of what they think is knowledge of history actually through fiction, through mm. TV. We're, we're living in a, an era, a post-literate age, where the moving image is king. Mm. And one's only got to think, for example, the Da Vinci Code. When the movie came out, I have to admit, in Britain, and it's horrific to admit this, but in Britain, over 50%, just over 50%, thought that Christ had had an affair with Mary Magdalene and the bloodline continued. And <laughs> I remember, I remember um, our daughter insisted on going to see the movie in the local flea pit in Canterbury. And um, as we were get coming to the end, the, um, the couple in front of us got up and the man turned to the young woman with him and next to him she said, goodness, that really makes you think. And we had to scream out, no! no. Well, I mean, you've really hit the nail on the head, I think, in, you know, in terms of the fact that we are... People, you know, younger people in particular, and Joanna, maybe you can speak to this, are, I suppose, less well-versed in his history, certain aspects mm. of history than, than they perhaps once were. And, um, and therefore, do you have a responsibility when you're, I mean, do you have a, feel a sense of responsibility, Joanna, when I, you're writing I, for younger readers? Actually, my goal is not to educate, it's to, it's to tell a, a mm. great story. Mm. That's what I want to do. I want to keep these kids reading. Mm. Mm. I, and if they learn something in the process, then fantastic. But that's not my goal. I'm not, I'm, I don't have, I, you know, that's not my, that's, that's not my role. Mm. You know? So, I mean, yeah. So, is history, have we moved to a realm where we value history more as entertainment than. Histotainment yeah. is the great phrase. Right, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm interested to know, I mean, Anthony, you've just praised a, a few um, uh, historical writers. I want to ask you all who you, what you think are examples of bad historical writing. 
but I think this will open, oh, no. open a can of worms. So perhaps oh. we could hear first from Joanna and Rosetta about who, who you admire. Okay, it, I, someone not sitting on the stage okay, with you, Who please. I admire? Um, a man called Harry Thompson, um, who wrote a brilliant book, I think 2006 it came out, called This Thing of Darkness. It's about Captain Fitzroy and um, the Voyage of the Beagle. A brilliant book. Um, Harry is uh, Harry's no longer with us. Um, I think he was a screenwriter um, for the BBC. Brilliant book. Um, thick. Mm. And he's dealing with real people, Darwin. I mean, Darwin and Fitzroy had an had a intriguing relationship, and that's explored uh, in great depth in that book. Um, I'd also like to um, mention... You know, Anthony um, uh, referred to the homoclé. You know, this this idea of of writing about real people um, uh, under a, a guise of you know something else, and and a, I think a brilliant example of that done in a very um, uh, poignant way is uh, Lily King's uh, Euphoria, which is essentially the um, the story of Margaret Mead and this incredible mm. love triangle in the forests of, you know, the jungles of Borneo. It was brilliant. Um, those are my two hot picks. Mm, mm. Mm. Rosetta. Okay, I'm having a mind blink. Cloud Streak? Ah, uh, what's his name? The author, Australian, forgive me going... Tim yeah, there you go. Thanks, oh, audience. Oh, my gosh. He was here a couple of years ago for the 25th anniversary of that book, I think, and I got him to sign up. Um, that was my first experience of um, a historical fiction with that played with um, ghost mythology, um, and it just grabbed me. And from there, I discovered Hamish Clayton's Wolf, which did the same thing. I adore that book still. Um, and you've got Paula Morris, Ring of Terror, and then more recently, Catherine Chidgey, Wishchild. So I'm drawn to these same um, book over and over again type of book where they are uh, delving into historical fiction, but there's that other element, that magical element that just um, uh, engages with my imagination, I adore that, mm, yeah. Mm. Um, all right, we've come to the, the bad historical writing question. Um, how about, Anthony, maybe starting with you, what do, what do you... Where, where, do, where do people go wrong? Um, I, I'll actually give an example of where, which is both good and bad, uh, which I think is quite interesting. Um, Les Bienveillants, which was, um, I think, translated as The Kindly Ones, was written by Jonathan Littell. Uh, the, I think the only American ever to win the Prix Goncourt mm. for this particular novel. Um, he does break uh, the rules in the worst possible way as far as I'm concerned because he brings in real characters like Himmler and so forth. And this is about uh, the Holocaust. So you can imagine it's a very, very controversial area. But at the same time, what is fascinating is that he, he of course, can go to areas where historians cannot possibly mm. go yeah. in terms of the psychology of some of the intellectuals within the SS Einsatzgruppen and so forth. Uh, murdering, murdering Jews. Um, now, of course, as I say, no historian should ever attempt and uh, get to go into areas of sort of psychological speculation and so forth. I remember the only time I ever tried to do it was I remember asking a great psychiatrist in Britain uh, what he thought about um, Hitler and Stalin in terms of their uh, mental um, condition. 
And he said, in the case of Stalin, you can be fairly certain that he was a paranoid schizophrenic. In the case of Hitler, all you can say is that he had a personality disorder. I didn't think I'd advanced very far with that <laughs> reply. But anyway, there we go. But in the case of Jonathan Littell's book, it was fascinating, this sort of contrast of the way... And I mean, it wasn't dishonesty on his part. I mean, I think Jonathan Littell is... I mean, I had long talks with him afterwards. Um, he was um, absolutely obsessed with this whole story, and he couldn't even explain the contradictions himself. He said, I just had to write mm -hmm. it down. Mm -hmm. But it did show up areas, as I say, which historians couldn't go into, even though he did, in my view, break a fundamental rules about um, speculation. Because my real worry about books of that sort, and for example, Hilary Mantel, mm -hmm. which is a superbly written book, mm -hmm. but in historical terms, it's outrageous, because one has no idea what she's <laughs> invented, what is speculation, or what is verifiable fact. And it's not surprising that Tudor historians have been horrified, but here we have Thomas Cromwell, one of the nastiest bastards of the uh, <laughs> Henrikian uh, period, uh, who, who's proved to be a sort of rather a goody-goody. And of course, you know, plenty of people have read those novels without having all that much knowledge of Tudor history yeah. themselves, and that's yes. what, you know, they now think that that's what it was. Um, but uh, jo Joanna, how about, how about you? Do you uh, Bad examples of, of... Of things that you've read that you feel don't, don't adhere to your ideas of what good historical writing uh, okay, should be. Okay, well, I, um, I'm going to out a brilliant author. <laughs> I, I love Richard Flanagan. Uh, I think he is... Fabulous, I'm, I'm a huge fan, but he did something in a book that I found really abhorrent and I'm going to tell you all so that we can all go, oh, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. He wrote a, 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 a really interesting book called Wanting about the Franklins in Van Diemen's Land with a parallel narrative of Dickens um, putting on a play called The Frozen Deep about Franklin going missing in the Northwest Passage. And... Um, uh, in one of the uh, uh, scenes set in Van Diemen's land, he uh, insinuated, or he suggested very strongly, that John Franklin had sexually abused the Aboriginal girl um, that was in their care that they had adopted. And I think that's inexcusable because as far as I know, and I've done a lot of research into the Franklins because that's the mm. focus of my next, my next project, um, there is no way that um, there is any evidence to support that claim, and I think that, that is, uh, that's appalling for somebody to do that, even though John Franklin, obviously, he's been dead for quite some time, but um, I, found, I found that really disappointing, actually, from a, from a writer as brilliant as Richard Flanagan. I loved to talk to him about how he justified that to himself. And this is what you're describing is what happens when you happen to read a, you know, a, a novel about a period that you yourself know, yeah. know a great deal about, just, where it was the average reader. And I, and, I, and I f feel quite upset at the thought of readers um, thinking, gee, that John Franklin, what an asshole, you know, yeah. well, what a, well, what a ped you know, pedophile, um, but what a creep. Yeah. Um, that's just not fair. I, I don't think that that's ever justified. And I think that any inaccurate information in the public arena should be challenged. Can I quickly add something? Yeah. I never can forget at the Sydney Writers Festival, I think it was in 2003, uh, Inga Clendinen, a wonderful um, Australian author, uh, on our panel there was a young German novelist who'd written a novel basically about um, changing history and the whole of the Goebbels' children who were all murdered by their parents in the Führer's bunker or whatever. And um, I, of course, totally disapproved of what he'd done, but I did start to feel sorry for him after Inga um, took him to 
pieces on this platform. I mean, I've never seen anybody quite so <laughs> hammered in my life. <laughs> um, oh, Rosetta, have you? What, what are your negative examples? Well, negative examples. You know, I'll probably put my head on that Tudor block as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't bother reading it. And, mm. and again, Hilary Mantel, I have read some of her books, and they're wonderfully written. And um, but to me, they're just a bit too fluffy. So I always look for, I'm always looking for more truth in what I'm reading. And uh, there are historical books, and then there are histor historical books. And I love books like Anthony's because he is not a dry read for historical. You get a lot of dry reads with historical research. Uh, Anthony is, is uh, wonderful at bringing in true accounts of people and experiences and their dialogue and creating actually story. You create story with mm. your historical uh, books, not in the fake form, but you're creating a lovely flow that it's easy to read and enjoyable. So I really enjoy that. Um, and I, I actually uh, just avoid fluff. Fair enough. I mean, it's interesting, um, uh, you know, the points that you make about Anthony's work bring us back to these kind of categorizations that your works have all been put into, your work being described as, as narrative non-fiction, mm. um, Joanna, but in fact, I would say that your work is also narrative, you mm. know, it's not like we pick up an Anthony Beaver book and there's mm. no narrative. Um, mm. You're absolutely kind of impelled to keep reading in the same way that you are with your work, Joanna. So, I mean, how do you feel about the, the boxes that you get put into in terms of the type of historical writing that you're doing? Well, I think that one's got to see also how history has changed over the last 20, 30 years. Um, I mean, it was always, history always tended to be written in the past in a sort of collective version of history uh, without, and then there was that period of oral history really in the 1980s. Um, and I never felt that oral history was particularly successful because it lacked all context. And what one really needed was the integration of history from above with history from below. Mm. Um, so, as I say, history moved, if you like, slightly behind the times, but it moved with that huge uh, social change, really, of the late 1980s and the 1990s, with the end of the Cold War, mm. changes in society, as well as changes in all economic um, developments. Um, and people were actually interested in the fate of the individual, and that mm. therefore meant uh, the importance of not writing military history, but if you like, writing the history of war, mm. which meant writing the stories, uh, or including the stories, of civilians and ordinary uh, soldiers. And I think that was uh, a, a sort of a vital step, and actually one of the reasons why history had suddenly then sort of uh, took off. I remember being in Moscow in 94, 95, and 95, it was the 50th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. Everybody assumed, uh, um, because all of the books on the subject was a huge publishing bonanza, they all failed to sell, and one thought that was the end of the subject. Um, it wasn't, it was sort of... It, shot off in a, in a totally unexpected, unexpected direction. Mm. So, so things do change in that particular way. There's a, to that point, there's a very interesting um, book called Second Hand Time by uh, Svetlana Alexeyevna. Yes, yes. Which won the Nobel Prize. It, it did, yeah. yeah. I can't remember what year it was, but it's, it's basically a book um, that is focused on the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, but she interviews regular people about everything but politics. Mm. It's about their love lives, their neighbours, their alcoholic father, um, their terrible boss at work that has a breakdown, somebody's son that's selling acid wash jeans on Red Square. Uh, so she comes to it, 
obliquely and it's, it's far more compelling. Um, it deals with real people and the collapse of a, of a system in the, you know, in the, in the dirty dishes mm. and the, you know, the sock drawer mm. and, the, and the trolley bus. And, you know, these, these things are just as, um, as relevant, if not more relevant, than what's happening at the Kremlin with yeah. Boris Yeltsin and Gorbachev and... Mm. Mm. No, but you're quite right. I mean, she, that it is the perfect example. I mean, it's the greatest example probably ever mm. of oral history. And I mean, she's I actually the first, first sort of non-fiction writer to win the uh, Nobel mm. Prize for quite a long mm. time. Mm. 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 Fabulous, fabulous work. And I mean, there has, of course, been a, a shift towards doing that type of historical work within the academy as well. And I guess um, I'm interested to know about, because you're all writing books that people, you know, people who aren't historical scholars within universities uh, are reading. And, um, uh, but there is sometimes an awkward um, uh, divide between the type of books that are published within, within universities and by scholarly presses and the types of books that um, are published by, um, by trade printing presses. And I just wondered, you know, did, you, did any of you, I mean, obviously Anthony, but Joanna and Rosetta, did you study history when you, um, uh, when you studied? Or did you, is it something that you've come to later? And do you have any sort of... Um, do, do you feel like you can take ownership of it despite or whatever your, your academic background was? And can you talk to that a little bit? Um, well, I can talk to that. And no, I didn't study history. Um, actually, I remember history in high school being terribly political and, and unappealing, so it wouldn't have been a subject that I would have thought would, I would find interesting. But I think the key here is that we are all interested in, in as we've said, the people. Um, as far as the university, um, I have gleaned a lot of help from uh, people within universities um, that specialise. So I've got Chang Zhu Song in the University of Auckland, who's a professor, and um, his main focus of study is the diaspora of the Kuriosarum. I didn't know that until I was halfway through this novel. And in researching the novel and um, boldly sending out emails and questions to uh, people around the world, um, you make friends and acquaintances, acquaintances that become friends and who become very passionate about what you are writing. Um, there, uh, I had help with two dear friends in Russia who worked at the Hermitage and went on to work at the Centre of Nonconformist Art, whose parents studied at the Academy of Art in the uh, in, uh, in in Saint Petersburg. So. Um, same in Kazakhstan, German, and I can't remember his last name, so he heads up uh, uh, the talks. And in fact, I'm invited to go to Kazakhstan to one of his conferences uh, to talk to them about my book, about them, which is really such an mm. honor. So although I haven't studied it myself, I, again, it's that source thing. I have, I have had tremendous help of people with with um, who have studied this, and it's their life's work. So, yeah. Mm. No, I think it's um, it's a fascinating point. The way that actually academe and uh, uh, history in general um, have actually come much more together. And I think one of the reasons is a hugely encouraging one, which is that um, the basically the jargon 
uh, version, the academic jargon, um, is being ditched. I never forget a dinner with the Minister of Education in Sweden, in Stockholm, and he said, you'll be interested to hear what I'm doing tomorrow. He said, I'm, I've called in all of the vice-chancellors of the universities uh, because I'm, I'm telling them that from now on we're not going to um, finance any um, academic work uh, unless it um, can be re read by the average intelligent person. And I thought, well, hang on a second, that's pretty ambitious. Uh, ambitious project. How are you going to define the average intelligent person? Um, but anyway, leaving that one aside, what, what I think is wonderful is the way that you know, the, the major academic historians take, take the Second World War, Ian Kershaw, Richard Evans, people like that, they write really good English. Mm. Um, and that's why, you know, they have the effect they do. And actually, you know, in Germany, where I'm afraid to say history is totally unreadable, um, you know, they do extremely well. And mm. I think that that is, that is actually one of the, if you like, the great advantages um, of um, the Anglo-Saxon historians. Mm, mm. Joanna, what about your, your academic background? Have you come to history so, by that? Because I studied um, Russian, actually from age 13, I went to Rangitoto College mm. um, on the North Shore here. They were one of the few schools that taught Russian at that, at that point. Um, so I've been, sort of been steeped in, in Russian history and uh, ended up doing a master's degree in Russian language um, and literature and wrote 35,000 words on... Alexander Block, the symbolist poet, and uh, n not many people have read that one, believe it or not. <laughs> we will, we will. I think I think my mum did, um, but that uh, that's his work. Uh, Alexander Block's work was um, sort of uh, steeped in this uh, the, the Petersburg myth, uh, the founding of St Petersburg. Um, there are all sorts of interesting tie-ins with the fall of Constantinople, and so there are lots of things that, that come into Russian history. Um, I, I suppose that that was my my entry point, mm. and now um, you know, like Rosetta, when I'm reading something, I want to learn something at mm. the same time. You know, there are lots of um, there are lots of wonderful books that will actually open up new avenues of of interest, and I think curiosity is one of those things that's insatiable. You know? it's, it's interesting that you say you want to learn something, but earlier you said that you wrote to, to entertain. And yes, um, I do. Yeah, yeah. I, entertain, I, I don't want to educate people. I want to take them on, a, on, a, on an exciting adventure. So why do you write for young people? Uh, well, I don't write for young people. Oh. I write for everybody. Ah, um, interesting. But I want it to be uh, accessible for as, as many people as, mm. as, as possible. Um, I certainly didn't write the book thinking, oh, I can't use that word because this is going to be a 13-year-old you know, reading this. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a tricky one. I, the, the whole, sh there's a sh I think there's a shift taking place between children's literature um, and, you know, adults that enjoy children's literature. Why, why do we have to close things off mm. for people? Why can't it just be, you know, reading a, a good book, mm. you know? So, um, I can't remember what your original question was. <laughs> no, 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 no. Entertaining. I don't want to bash people over the head and say, um, you know, I don't necessarily want to say anything in my books. I just want to open up open up, if, you know, these, these 
incredible stories that have been forgotten. They've, gav they've gathered dust, mm. you know. Um, I want to read stories about things that happened. You know, I love, I love fiction, but I find that the real stories are what really grab me here because I know that, you know, they involved real people. Mm, mm. Mm. But in saying that, you're creating story which takes the reader on a vicarious experience, and I mm. think that's mm. what's important. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, we are going to go to questions um, in a minute, uh, but I think what I'd like to finish with before we do that is, um, as I was prepping for this section, I was thinking about the precedent for what you do, and I went back and I read the start of um, Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, going mm. right back, and I was so struck by, right at the start, um, uh, he's, he's got this sort of disclaimer where he sets out what he's going to do, and, um, and he says, the absence of romance in my history will, I fear, detract somewhat from its interest, but if it be judged useful by those inquirers who desire an exact knowledge of the past as an aid to the interpretation of the future, which in the course of human things must resemble, if it does not reflect it, I shall be content. To what extent do you see what you're doing as somehow kind of preparing readers for the future? <laughs> wow, that's a huge question. I think it's very dangerous, actually, because mm. what we have seen is the way the politicians, particularly I'm afraid British and American ones, uh, political leaders, have tried to use history uh, in totally artificial ways. Uh, in mainly for political purposes mm -hmm. and the historical parallels they've used, uh, usually with the Second World War, because they want to sound Rooseveltian or Churchillian, uh, is phenomenally dangerous. Mm -hmm. And I'm once only got to see the way that Bush compared 9-11 to Pearl Harbor, uh, which immediately indicated state-on-state -state warfare rather than treating Al-Qaeda as a... Anyway, leaving, all that, leaving all, all, all that aside, the important point, and this is where one where area where Churchill was totally wrong, saying we read history so as to understand the future, rather in a similar way to Thucydides, uh, the point is, history can never be a predictive mechanism. Mm. You know, it, it is literally. We, we find at times it may rhyme or it may echo um, events today. Um, but if you start making historical parallels, you're going to make major, major mistakes mm. in analysis. Mm. Rosetta, Joanna, do you have any thoughts thoughts on that? I would agree with that. I don't know. I, I agree that the past echoes the future, and you can you can see similar uh, uh, things occurring with uh, present times, the search for identity, uh, uh, and uh, the idea of the borders going up stronger. You know, you can read a lot into that, but really, it's not an overlay, is it? I think every every generation's a new generation. Mm -hmm. uh, let's make it new. Yeah. All right. Thanking Joanna, Anthony, and Rosetta. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.